on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Hedging Screens podcast, the Hedging Screens broadcast, whatever you want to call it. As always, I'm your host, Zach Cronin, and I'm coming to you live from downstate New York, of course, as always. But today, it's a little different. Today, the weather is actually nice. My nipples aren't hard all day long because of the frigid temperatures, and it's starting to feel a lot like spring here in New York, which of course is always welcome. I feel like if you live anywhere in the Northeast or really anywhere where it's cold, you kind of just appreciate spring and summer a little bit more, unlike you privileged bastards that live over in San Diego, where it's the most perfect, the most picturesque, the most tolerable weather anywhere, anywhere in the country, 60 to 70 degrees all year long, slight breeze. It is just the perfect, perfect, perfect place to live. And man, I'm just trying to think about where to start with this episode. I don't know if any of you guys are into Formula One by any means or have, you know, dabbled in motor racing yourselves, but I watched Drive to Survive season four, the fourth installment of some of Netflix's best documentary work. Netflix, I don't know what it is about Netflix, but for some reason, anything they produce that is nonfiction is absolutely incredible. And then everything that they produce that is fictionalized is just dog shit. I don't know if I, I don't I don't understand how there is such a quality discrepancy. But as you guys know, if you do follow um, Drive to Survive. Every season, or at least for the last four seasons, Netflix, the crews have gone around and, you know, just documented the Formula One season very similarly. It's a kind of a similar concept to HBO's Hard Knocks, except and I've actually never watched Hard Knocks, but as far as I know, it's really, I've only seen stuff from like the training camp portion of Hard Knocks, whereas Drive to Survive follows each team, follows all the storylines throughout the length of the season and this season was highly anticipated for for what I feel was the championship battle and the very interesting championship turnout that happened at the end of last season of course we're talking about the final race in uh, I think it was Abu Dhabi where Max Verstappen Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton went head to head and Max Verstappen wound up winning the world championship on what was a very interesting call by race control at the end of the, at the end of the race, you know, with the whole safety car decision. And I'm not here to talk about that. I'm not here to talk about that decision. I'm not here to analyze the situation. At any rate, whether you were rooting for Lewis, whether you were rooting for Max, just because Max got very lucky, and you can't and you can't deny that he didn't get lucky because any championship in any sport involves a tremendous amount of talent but also a little bit of luck as well and you can't sit here and say that Max did not deserve to be world champion I mean there was a reason that the race came down to the very or the championship came down to the very last race of course a lot of Max's success was early in the season and then Lewis really just fucking no pun intended but switched it to eighth gear and just proved us to why he's the greatest Formula One driver ever but all of really everything was building to that moment but there were a lot of other things that I didn't realize were kind of taking place all throughout it um like for instance the the early season struggles with Daniel Ricardo over at McLaren the kind of interesting relationship between he and Lando Norris of course there was also the 
forming brotherhood between Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz with Ferrari. So it's not like I wasn't captivated up until the last episode. I breezed through this in three days, and it would have been two if my girlfriend and I didn't decide to watch another Netflix documentary on some of the worst um, roommate, ex- like some of the worst roommate experiences that people have experienced. But it was really, as always, gripping work by Netflix. And anyone who's interested in Formula One, or even anybody who's interested in getting into Formula One, as an outsider, one of the things that makes this series so interesting is that very much like football, the racers, the drivers, the athletes, whatever you want to call them, it's almost kind of the relationship is almost it's definitely not as personable as the NBA, for example, because you see these guys and they're racing at 200 miles an hour in helmets. They're sat down in the car like this, right? So you can't you can't really build a connection with them as an athlete and drive to survive really takes the helmet off for lack of a better term and humanizes these guys and that's an issue that every athlete runs into is the dehumanization of them because they're seen as like an entertainment piece but the talking heads the behind the scenes looks at how all the teams interact how the team principals interact with one another I'm sure Christian Horner has a bunch of haters and I can very obviously see why, but this goes really for any team principal. And it got me really stoked. It got me really stoked for this season. Also with the fact that it's entering a new era of Formula One. The turbo hybrid era is pretty much over. A whole new set of regulations came in, at least in terms of aerodynamics. And I think they're getting closer to implementing some sort of, um, some sort of salary cap because much like baseball, there is none. And the bigger teams, looking at Mercedes, looking at Ferrari, looking at Red Bull, teams with deep pockets. I think they're called um, factory teams, if I'm not mistaken. Like the teams that actually are a business beyond racing. Like Mercedes produces cars. Like Mercedes is a huge multinational corporation. Same thing with Ferrari. Same thing with McLaren. Although their cars are obviously more inaccessible to the greater population. But if you're a smaller team like Alpine or Haas, infamously Williams, like you struggle, you struggle to compete and to break out of the midfield because it's just, it's almost impossible to compete when the technology is so much better. I mean, you can have the best driver in the world and still be at the tail end of the pack. I mean, George Russell goes to Mercedes in this offseason, raced one race for Mercedes last year, and he would have probably podiumed if it weren't for, um, I forgot what kind of issue it was, but he wound up DNFing because the car just broke down. And then his regular team, Williams, he's like barely getting into, you know, the top 15 just because the car simply cannot compete. But enough about this. I've also been um, watching the Showtime Lakers document or documentary. I don't even know what the fuck to call it. I did only watch the first episode because HBO Max is doing that fucking stupid thing where they're not just releasing everything all at once like Netflix does, like Hulu does for any program that isn't released on TV. It's sectioned out week by week, and unfortunately I wasn't able to catch this Sunday's past episode, but after the first season, I am absolutely smitten with the series. Quincy Isaiah, the guy who plays um, Magic Johnson, I think did a phenomenal job. John C. Riley as Jerry Buss was something that I did not realize. Of course, they're going to introduce Adrian Brody as well as Pat Riley. 
and I think it it really is something that is um I think it's going to be nice that HBO gets the rights to these because thinking about Los Angeles in the 80s and how uncensored you can be. I mean, the first scene for this fucking show was Jerry Buss waking up in the Playboy Mansion and there were just titties and dicks all over the place. So not being restricted to the same to the same degree as you would be if you were on another streaming service. I think it's um it's just it's it's great for it's great for basketball fans, but we're going to go ahead and actually get into some basketball talk because of course that's what we're here to do we're also going to discuss a little bit of uh, free agency as well NFL free agency I should say but I want to first start off with this really fascinating storyline that played out a couple of days ago involving Jason Williams and the late great Kobe Bryant a couple days ago uh, Jason Williams came out and made some very fascinating claim that Kobe is not one of the five greatest Lakers of all time, which is preposterous. Uh, Clutch Points here calls it audacious. That is definitely that is definitely a way to describe it. Said that he does not consider Kobe in his top five. So I just want to read his original report. Jason Williams on Kobe Bryant. I'm not even sure Kobe's in my top five list of greatest Lakers of all time, which is... Uh, uh, listen, man, I know that the Lakers are the most storied franchise in the NBA. But, but, nearly one-third of their championships was won by a singular player. Well, you know, a singular player, but he didn't win all those titles by himself, obviously. But Kobe was there for nearly a fifth of the Lakers titles 2001 2002 2003 and then uh 2009 and 2010 five titles could have you know potentially had six I mean wherever you rank Kobe Bryant on your all-time list there are people who have him top 10 people who have him top five people he's easily top 15 and I think putting him outside of the top 12 is quite disrespectful for me he's in that weird gray area between 9 and 12 where you have like Shaquille O'Neal, Tim Duncan, Jerry West, even though Jerry West doesn't have the championship, the same championship pedigree as Kobe Bryant does, definitely he's in there. Um, You know, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry are creeping up to that top 15 area as well. But, uh, you know, I'm not here to split hairs over the greatest of all time because there really is such a small margin between all of the guys, definitely in the top 10 and in the top 12. Obviously, the first tier, who I consider to be guys like LeBron, Magic, Jordan, uh, Kareem, and then you know we'll throw maybe Bill Russell in there as well. Guys who not only have all of the accolades, but also have really cemented themselves as untouchables, as as actual legends, as actual icons. And you could make a case for Kobe in there as well. There are uh, there are a handful of guys. That you could throw into the top five if you wanted to. I'm talking about Hakeem, David Robinson, Larry Bird, Will. I mean, it's splitting hairs at that point. You know, we're not talking about Kobe Bryant versus somebody like um, Charles Barkley, right? No disrespect to Sir Charles, but I think there's a larger degree of separation between those two than, say, Kobe and Kareem, for example. But for Jason Williams, 
for Jason Williams, for White Chocolate, for one of the most entertaining, for one of the most entertaining players the NBA has ever seen, for him to come out and exclude Kobe from his top five is it's blasphemous, it's audacious, it's preposterous, it's just downright insane. And I don't understand how he came to that conclusion because off the top, the five greatest Lakers of all time, Magic's there, Kareem is there, Shaq's there. I really don't see a world where you don't have Kobe in that top five. Because if you want to, you know, get freaky with it and throw LeBron in there, I could see why. But to me, LeBron is the greatest player ever to wear a Lakers uniform, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's the greatest Laker ever. Because guys like Magic, Kareem, Shaq, and Kobe had more of a role in shaping the franchise into what it is now, as opposed to LeBron, who's just coming in and perpetuating this legacy of greatness. And I'm not trying to downplay LeBron as a Laker because he does have a title, but he's his signing with L.A. was not as grand as it was, you know, arguably the greatest player of all time signing with arguably the greatest franchise. It's not the same if Kobe and Shaq don't win three titles together. It's not the same if Magic and Kareem don't win five titles. So just with that explanation, obviously Kobe belongs in the top five. And Jason Williams, he first said what he said, and then he goes on Instagram to address it. And instead of doubling down, like most people, like most people do, on the timeline, they post cringe, they post cringe, and then they double down on posting cringe because this is what you do. That's how you conduct yourself in today's day and age. You post cringe and then you you <laughs> re you re-cement the cringe you just posted. So white chocolate goes, Well, what's up, world? Purple heart emoji. So I noticed I kind of stirred the pot, so to speak, last week with my comments about Kobe, prayer hands emoji. <laughs> I've seen some of your comments, but not nearly all of them. Some are positive, some not so positive. The anger that some folks have over this conversation is awesome to me because it means you care. Basketball emoji. Now, with that being said, let me explain what I meant last week. First off, Kobe Bean Bryant is the greatest sparkle emoji, Lakers sparkle emoji ever, period 100. (laughs) I love the dude, Jason Williams. I know he's not that old, but he, he writes like an older person does like my grandma does this shit all the time and obviously my grandma's in her 80s he's, she's not like close to 50 like jason williams is but she'll just put she just she'll just put emojis somewhere like random ass emojis in between sentences she'll you know send a whole bunch of heart emojis at the end and it's the cutest thing ever when she does it but jason williams <laughs> is just i just i love i love the use of emojis it's awesome um, he then went on to explain his earlier statement by reiterating his point about Kobe not being in the top five. In the conversation you heard, my thinking was that we were talking about all the greatest NBA players ever who wore the Lakers purple and gold for at least one season. I wasn't talking about the greatest Laker ever because that's Kobe. Kobe is the Lakers. But in what I was saying, I was thinking about Wilt, Kareem, Magic, Shaq, LeBron. That's my top five players who ever played in a Laker jersey, in case you were wondering. Those players who, in my opinion, were slash are better than Kobe. That's just my opinion. Doesn't mean I'm saying it's a fact shrug emoji, of course. So my bad if I've hurt any of y'all feelings. It's just my opinion, which goes back to what I was just saying about LeBron. There are great players who wore Lakers jerseys, but that doesn't mean that they're the same as Kobe, who helped build the Lakers 
into what they are now. Obviously, he pretty much, I mean, three of the guys he named deserve to be there. Kareem, obviously. Magic, obviously. But this is a weird like comment to have because when someone asks me who the greatest Laker of all time is, I don't automatically revert to Jay Will's initial level of thinking. I don't uh, I don't look at it as to the greatest players who ever wore Lakers jersey. It's again the greatest Lakers ever and I'm sounding very redundant redundant here, but that's the only way for me to for me to explain it. And if you're going to have oh dude, scam. Dude, I hate getting fucking scam texts from fucking oh god, disgusting. Threw off my train of thought. Um like, if you're going to put Shaq in any list regarding the Lakers, you have to put Kobe as well. Even though I think LeBron ranks higher all-time than um, Kobe does, Shaq and Kobe are arguably the greatest duo of all time. I mean, they're up there with, Mag- with Magic and Kareem. Of course, Scotty and MJ, LeBron and D-Wade, Steph and KD. But if I think... You know, we're talking about the greatest Lakers of all time. Magic, Kareem, Kobe, Shaq. And I feel like you have to go with Jerry West because Wilt wasn't really a Laker like that. He was not. He didn't spend a majority of his years with the Lakers. Like, most of it was spent with Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Warriors... Um, the fucking whatever you want to call them. I'm I'm so bad when it comes to uh like teams changing changing their fucking uh their names. So whether it's the Warriors or the Sixers, like I don't equate Wilt with being a Laker because Lakers Wilt is not the Wilt that we think of. This isn't the dude who scored hundred points in a game. This isn't that dude who averaged fifty and twenty five. I mean, don't get me wrong, Wilt on the Lakers was twisted, but he only averaged more than 21 points a game one time. Like, we don't associate Wilt with the Lakers. We associate Wilt with the Warriors more than anybody else. So it's just weird to put him in that same conversation. And whether you want to include Jerry West or James Worthy, I think it's got to be Jerry West because if Bill Russell does not exist, if there's an alternate universe where Bill Russell is a lesser version of himself or Bill Russell just does not exist at all, we're looking at Jerry West as... One of, like, as probably the greatest player of all time. To go to the finals, what was it, like, 10 times or whatever it was, and just get fucking dumpstered every time, despite being the most talented offensive player on the floor. If Bill Russell and the Celtics are not the, the, are not the Celtics, the greatest of all time list looks very, very different. And overall, it was just very... um. It was just very interesting to see Jason Williams have this taken. Um, he did, of course, he apologized, which, you know, it's great. It, it's fine that Jason Williams apologized. But then again, like, if you're one of those weirdos who are, like, threatening Jason Williams and his family because he had a differing opinion than, than you in regards to Kobe, you you need to seek help. You need to go outside. You need to touch grass. Just feel the wind. <laughs> feel the wind on your hips feel the wind on your face go take a walk listen to the birds 
just step outside, put the computer away, put the phone away, and just remember, it's an opinion. It's an opinion. This isn't something to get heated about. Okay, we're not discussing hot button issues regarding geopolitics or socioeconomics. We're talking about basketball. And I understand that for a lot of people, you know, basketball is a huge passion of theirs. And I'm I'm in the same way. I do get heated about certain topics, but only if it is something completely egregious. Okay? Like if someone tells me straight face that Draymond Green is not a Hall of Famer, I'm popping off. But if we're having a like a splitting hairs discussion about Kobe Bryant's placement on the all-time list or LeBron's placement on the all-time list, I'm not getting bent out, bent out of shape about that. Because all of those guys, all these great guys that I just mentioned, like they have their own arguments for being the greatest of all time. And when we're going to have this conversation about Steph, we'll have this conversation about Giannis, we'll have this conversation about Luka in a couple in a you know, a decade or so, a decade and a half. And it's just it's the minutia of NBA discourse and it's not worth like threatening someone's family or you know asking Jason asking Jason Williams to drop a pin so that way you can go and fucking beat his ass like you're just being weird at that point so he continues and says I love this game and I respect this game it has nothing to do with Kobe busting my team's ass just about every time we played them either (laughs) really the only difference between my opinion and y'all opinion is that I just happened to play against some of these dudes we're talking about and that's it and I'll do you one better the people I've named are way above my talent level legends goats goats goat emoji trophy emoji hashtag mamba so Jason Williams is doing something that certain well you know what I'm not surprised that he's like, oh, you know, these guys are obviously better than me because as great as Jason Williams was, like, he doesn't compare to any of these dudes that he's mentioned. He doesn't compare to anyone in the top, like, 50 of the all-time list. That might be a little disrespectful. I apologize. But listen, it's his opinion. He backed it up. He said that, you know, there was a a misinterpretation on someone's end, a miscommunication on someone's end. And this is kind of what happens when people are on social media or people are on, you know, a, a mainstream TV program where you really don't have the the area to explain yourself. At least I think that's where uh, this happened. I can't remember, actually. Oh, no, he said it on a podcast. Just kidding. Although I didn't listen to the podcast, but like that's a great forum for him to explain your, for him to explain himself. You know, he makes it. He states something. He states his opinion. And then what you're supposed to do after giving your opinion, you know, say, I don't think Kobe's top five Laker of all time because I'm looking at it as the greatest players ever to have worn a jersey. And I'm sure people still would have freaked the fuck out because that's just how things go on the Internet. But at least he would have been. But at least from the jump, he could have at least referenced back to the show and been like, I mean, I gave you guys my methodology. Is it the right methodology? I mean, you know, that's impossible to say, but. You know, this is this is how I came to this conclusion. But and of course, stuff like this stings a little more when, you know, Kobe, of course, isn't here. And I don't I don't think Jason Williams. I, I, I know for a fact that Jason Williams wasn't trying to be disrespectful here, because if, if there's anything I know about professional athletes, the one thing they have for, you know, the ones that came before them or their contemporaries or, you know, just the um the status of a lot of guys 
is they respect they respect their competitors because it's really the only way that you can it's really the only way that you're able to compete at such a high level like you don't have to like these guys you just have to you just have to respect them especially especially if they're fucking busting your ass as frequently and as intensely as the Lakers were doing to Sacramento. So with this out of the way, we're going to move on to the worst fucking development in recent weeks. Last week or two weeks ago, whenever the fuck it happened, um, Eric Adams, for some fucking reason, decided to only halfway lift New York City's vaccine mandate. And the big hubbub around this was the fact that Kyrie Irving was not allowed to play for the Brooklyn Nets. But he was around, but he was able to sit down courtside in the Barclays Center when his team took on the Knicks this past Sunday. And I've already gone into this. I actually did a video about it on my YouTube channel, so be sure to check that out just to get just for you guys to get my full my full thoughts on this situation. But the TLDR is that all of the following is true. Kyrie Irving should get vaccinated. You should also get vaccinated. This situation would enti- would be avoided if Kyrie got vaccinated, but he does not want to. That's his decision. The third thing that is now true is that Eric Adams is a dumbass. Eric Adams is doing what a lot of public servants in America do is that they only care about the optics of the decisions that they're making, which is why a lot of public servants in America choose to not legislate meaningful reforms, whether it's something like this vaccine mandate, whether it's something on a larger scale like um, Medicare for all or like universal pre-K child tax credit or any sort of reform when it comes to uh, police reform, drug reform or prison reform. But they'll go and they'll screech and they'll bitch and moan about certain things, whether it's masks most prominently. And Eric Adams is caught up in this because now it's a spectacle. It's a spectacle for the Eric Adams administration because he just couldn't for some reason lift it entirely. And as I said last week, two weeks ago, if you're either... You should either lift it entirely or not lift it at all. Because when you leave it up to interpretation, you can't leave things up to interpretation to people in America. It just it it just doesn't happen. Okay, you tell them one thing or you tell them the other thing. Full stop. Full stop. And I'm sure he has his own motivations for um, not lifting like the employee mandate because the city, of course, pushed super hard to get everybody vaccinated like city employees to get to get them vaccinated and they they wound up they wound up laying off a decent chunk of people who decided not to get vaccinated and now if eric adams does that if he lifts it for the private sector mandate that's what he called it he just looks silly and then people are going to be pissed off that they lost their job for for a bullshit reason more or less and that's a whole different discussion but essentially what happened after this is that after Kevin Durant put 53 on the New York Knicks, he was taking shots at Eric Adams. Definitely. Everybody was. Everybody was taking shots at Eric Adams. 
anti-vax people, of course. Um, well, they weren't taking shots at Eric Adams. They're mostly, you know, they're doing their whole fucking bullshit where they just they just screech and bitch and moan about whatever. Pro-vax people, of course, were like, dude, this doesn't do anything. Like, this is just stupid. You're making an issue out of something that doesn't need to be an issue. And then I'm I don't know I don't have the exact quote here, but from this article on Sports Illustrated, it's literally four paragraphs long. Uh, after a very direct post-game press conference where Durant insinuated that the NYC mayor was one of many people, quote, looking for attention during this time, KD clarified on Monday that he appreciates the mayor's difficult task despite his frustration with the situation. Now, I'm going to actually find KD's full quote because I remember seeing it. And what happened afterwards is just, it's so, ugh, it makes me sick. I really do fucking despise... Oh, here we go. I have found a video of it. Interesting. Perfect. Which side walks with you guys into the locker room, but obviously can't take two steps onto the floor and play. It's ridiculous. Like, I don't understand it at all. I mean, can't, is it every, it's a few people in our arena that's unvaxxed, right? Like, they lifted all of that in our arena, right? So what's the, I don't get it. It's a second mandate that says he can come in, but can't play. Yeah, I don't get it. It just feels like at this point now, somebody's trying to make a statement or a point um to flex their authority um but you know everybody out here is looking for attention and that's why i feel like the the mayor wants right now some attention you know um but he'll figure it out soon he better um but it just didn't make any sense like there's unvaxxed people in this building already we got a guy who uh can come into the building i guess are they fearing our safety what like i don't get it so yeah, we're all confused. Pretty much everybody in the world is confused at this point. Early on in the season, you know, people didn't understand what was going on, but now it just looks stupid. So hopefully, Eric, you, you got to figure this out. I mean, that's 100% facts. Early in the season, regardless whether or not you were pro-mandate or against it, at least it was uniform. Like, Kyrie couldn't be there, but all of the spectators, all of the other players, everybody in the arenas, they needed to be vaccinated to get there because as we know tight condensed indoor spaces is a breeding ground for COVID especially now with the prevalence of breakthrough cases stuff like that that made more sense because you could at least be like oh well we are worried about people's safety which is why we only want vaccinated people in the building but the second that you let unvaccinated spectators in you no longer you've lost all the leverage in this situation and Unfortunately, what happens a lot of the time in American politics is, as you would expect, the public servants manipulate, take advantage of the people that they're most able to. Now, Kyrie's in this interesting situation because a lot of the times in America, who gets taken advantage of? It's marginalized people, whether they're black, brown, trans, gay, whatever, and also poor people. And there are various ways, of course, that People are manipulated. Uh, the biggest one, for example, is that your healthcare being tied to your job. That's an example of manipulation in the American healthcare system. It just happens on a larger scale because it's federal. It's federally regulated and not locally regulated, like the mandate on, uh, like the, um, like the New York City vaccine mandate. That's just one way. And then Kyrie is, of course, wealthy. He is black, so he is discriminated against in other ways outside of the NBA. And now 
Eric Adams is like, oh, yeah, nah, you can't play because because I don't know why. There really is no rationale for this. And I'm not just trying to, you know, get on Eric Adams because I dislike him. I mean, I do dislike him, but for actual reasons. Um, Something that KD said that was very prescient to me, I guess, was he claims that Eric Adams is looking for attention. And I don't know if Kevin Durant keeps up with the politics of the mayor of New York City. I'm sure he does to a certain degree, but KD being like a ball is life dude, I'm definitely not betting on it. I'm definitely like he just KD seems like he just does not concern himself with anything other than basketball during the basketball season. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing because I mean, I also let's be real. Kevin Durant could focus on everything and he still dropped 35 on your favorite team. That's just how that's just how goaded he is. But in terms of policy, Eric Adams needs a distraction from his absolutely disgusting political views for his absolutely atrocious um, legislative aspirations. And this is the perfect one because what is it? The vaccine, the masks, COVID is now a culture war issue where you have Democrats and Republicans bickering at one another over some bullshit instead of actually trying to find common ground on material systemic change. Now, Eric Adams is... One of the many things that Eric Adams is looking to do is he wants to reinstate solitary confinement for some reason because he's a fucking psycho. I mean, he's an ex-cop too, so that makes sense. Second thing he wants to do is he wants to cut public funding for, um, or he wants to cut funding for public schools, which is 100% not a real thing. I mean, there's also a tremendous homelessness problem in New York City that if I had to guess, he does not have any actual change for. He's not looking to supply housing homeless people he's not looking to give them adequate mental health adequate drug addiction treatments i mean this guy is literally just a republican he's he's just a republican and this issue this issue allows people to fixate on Kyrie and the vaccine and not criticize him for anything else and i say all this because a couple days ago or this was yesterday kd comes out with a statement and the tune has totally flipped the article reads after cave after uh, durant's 53 point performance in a win over the knicks on sunday katie spent a good majority of his post-game press conference speaking on Kyrie's ineligibility calling out the new york city mayor durant caught the attention of everyone around the nba and even many outside of sports on monday evening durant released a statement clarifying his comments quote The last two years have been a difficult and painful time for New Yorkers, as well as a very confusing time with the changing landscape of the rules and mandates. I do appreciate the task the mayor has in front of him with all the city has been through. My frustration with this situation doesn't change the fact that I will always be committed to helping the communities and cities I live in and play in. So, I don't know what, who pressured KD to make this comment. I fucking hope that it was one of his PR people who came to him and said, hey, you got you to gotta clarify what you said. Because if it was the mayor of New York City, if the mayor of New York City reached out to Kevin Durant and said, hey, I don't like what you said, that is an absolutely spineless reaction from Eric Adams. 
to reach out to the biggest, to arguably the biggest star in New York City. To reach out to him and voice your displeasure and coerce him into into releasing a statement clarifying his stance where he mentions that he'll always be committed to helping the communities like that's separate from the mayor's office Kevin Durant is no doubt trying to improve the material conditions of somebody in New York City but he can do that without the mayor's help I mean it would be awesome if the government just did that and athletes didn't have to do all this charity because it's the government's job to do these things that the athletes are doing. It's the government's job to build schools and, you know, give underprivileged kids adequate learning, adequate area, adequate places for them to learn. It's the government's job to make sure that, you know, affordable housing is available to lower income communities it's not the athlete's responsibility it's great that they're doing it and it's great that there are charitable charitable people like lebron like steph like kd like Kyrie, all of these people who do reach out to community leaders and organizers but they shouldn't have to and then just you know getting off this tangent like why does eric adams care about kd's statement is it because there is an underlying motivation for him? Is he really making an example out of Kyrie Irving? I hope not. Like, again, I'm not coming out shitting on Eric Adams just for the sake of shitting on Eric Adams. Like, I'm not critical of him just because of who he is. I'm critical of him because he's he's a public servant who is not operating like one. He's being destructive. He's being destructive. He's trying to distract from the actual things that he's capable of fixing in New York City. And this is what he chooses to focus on. He chooses to focus on the um he chooses to focus on Kevin Durant's comments about his decision instead of, you know, critically looking at the situation and being like, okay, you know, maybe I did fuck up by not just lifting the mandates as a whole. Like you can't say that you're going to follow the science and that you believe in the science which is obviously the right thing to do like i agree with lifting all the mandates in new york city because covid is flattening although it's probably going to rise again in a little bit but do it for everybody why are you discriminating against all of these city employees and you know the most prominent city employee in Kyrie irving it just does not it doesn't make any sense to me. I can't I can't wrap my mind around why this is even a thing. Why Kevin Durant even has to involve himself in something like this. It's just it's weird. Like everybody's confused. KD's confused. Bruce Brown is confused. Seth Curry is fucking confused. Steve Nash is confused. Everybody. Kyrie Irving is confused because it just it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Now, moving on from this, there has been not much NBA news going on. I mean, I think the most prominent piece of news is that 
<laughs> James Harden and Joel Embiid were billed as Shaq and Kobe 2.0, and then they got absolutely dumpstered by the Brooklyn Nets a few nights ago. They just also recently lost to the Denver Nuggets, and I feel that that, that ultimately sealed Nikola Jokic as the, uh, as the league MVP. Now, I had a take on this, which definitely differed from the, uh, the mainstream view, and I was like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to go ahead and we're going to give John Morant the MVP because Memphis is the second best team in the NBA. Second best team in the NBA. Ja is having a career season averaging 27, 6, and 7, shooting almost 53% from the field. He is a force that the NBA has not seen in quite a while. This dude's averaging like almost 18 points a game in the paint. And the narrative... The narrative of him, a 23-year-old, a 22-year-old, whatever, however old he is, leading the Memphis Grizzlies to the second-best record in the Western Conference, ahead of Golden State, ahead of Denver, ahead of the Clippers, the Lakers, ahead of every team that was projected to be better than them. I mean, their over-under this year was 41.5. They were projected to be a 500 team because we get Jai's great. But the rest of the team is, you know, they're 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 okay. I'm not trying to disparage anyone because Desmond Bain is having an awesome season. Triple J is having a solid season as well, is you know, coming out as one of the best defensive young bigs in the NBA. Dylan Brooks has been out for a majority of the season, and they'd be even better if he was here. And for these reasons, I always felt that John Morant had a better MVP case than Joel Embiid. Because I get that Joel Embiid is leading the league scoring. I get that he is, you know, positioned the Sixers as one of the better teams in the East. But, like, we've been known about Joel. And it's remarkably impressive what he's doing this season. 30 points, 11 boards. I mean, I'm looking at his stats right now. And they, they're unreal. They are literally unreal. 30 points, 11 rebounds, 4 assists, 1.5 blocks, shooting 49% from the field, and 36% from 3. I'm not going to use his free throws against him because, listen, I know that this big motherfucker does a lot of offensive fouling. Okay, He gets away, he gets away with a couple elbows every now and then. Him and Giannis both do. But I understand how impossible it is to defend them. But the Sixers have a stronger team than the Grizzlies and definitely the Nuggets. I mean, Tyrese Maxey, Tobias Harris, James Harden, and of course, you know, James Harden only recently joined the picture. But like, the Sixers have always been, they've been a good team for the last couple of years. And then for the majority of this year, like, I don't think anyone expected anything less from them. And because this is the MVP race, the narrative controls everything. And I just don't want to push the Sixers narrative, maybe because I'm biased against them because they play in the same division as the Nets. But more so, I just don't feel that they're comparative to Memphis. I mean, Memphis is significantly better with a worse roster. And then, of course, we have the Denver Nuggets who are just, they, I don't know what they're doing here. Upon first glance, they're 41 and 28, 
sixth in the Western Conference. They're on the verge of being a playoff team. Okay, they're one game up of the Minnesota Timberwolves, actually. And they very well could miss the playoffs if the T-Wolves continue to stay hot and if there is a little bit of a drop-off for the Denver Nuggets. I mean, this is entirely feasible. But look at this team, dude. Nikola Jokic, okay, 26 points, 14 boards, 8 assists. His next best player is Will Barton. There's Will Barton. There's Monte Morris. There's Aaron Gordon. There's Jeff Green. I love Uncle Jeff. Now, these guys are very, very solid role players. They filled their roles exceptionally well. I loved the addition of Jeff Green for Denver. Especially, you know, they are a little bit of a younger team who's really just needing a vet. They, they need a veteran presence. They needed a veteran presence. And Jeff Green, Jeff Green provides that. He's 35. He's been around the block. I mean, he played crucial minutes for Brooklyn last year. But this team, without Jamal Murray and without Michael Porter Jr., should not be this good. And this is a serious check for for Nikola Jokic. Because statistically, Ja, Joel, and Jokic all are comparable to one another. And this always happens with the MVP race. You always have guys who are really on the same level. Okay, it's very rare that you get a unanimous MVP. It's so rare, in fact, that it's only happened one time. And it was with Steph Curry back in 2016 when he was very clearly the just, he was indescribably good. But like LeBron never won a unanimous MVP. Jordan never won a unanimous MVP because especially now the NBA is so talented. There are, realistically, like five serious MVP candidates. You add Giannis and you add DeRozan to the fray, and any one of these dudes can bring home the award. And Jokic, because of his statistical dominance, is going to be the winner because of his numbers, but also because of the narrative. Like, he's doing something. He is going to will this team to the playoffs in a very difficult Western Conference in a Western Conference that would have been even more difficult if the Lakers didn't fall off a cliff this year. He's doing what we praised LeBron for back when he was with Cleveland. I mean, this team, granted, of course, the context of these situations are exceptionally different, whereas whereas Jokic is in this situation because of stuff out of his control, the um, the injuries... LeBron was in that situation because management simply did not give enough of a fuck to supply him with a solid team until he came back the second time. Like that's a huge that's a huge piece of the argument that <clears throat> gets lost when you talk about LeBron's first stint in Cleveland. I mean, this dude never had a second player that was as good as Michael Porter Jr., let alone like Jamal Murray. Okay? His number twos, we're looking at Mo Williams, the Drunas Ogoskis. Like, no disrespect to any of those guys, but you're not beating the Celtics. You're not beating the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. You're not beating the Spurs or the Lakers in the Finals with those guys as your number two. But Jokic is doing that. Jokic has the same hurdles that LeBron had to overcome. 
So when you look at it that way, I mean, it's kind of hard not to pick Jokic. I might still go with job because I didn't realize that Memphis was still was still really dominant. Like I had no idea because like there's no chatter about Ja anymore for some reason. Or maybe I'm just like not I mean I'm chronically online but maybe not chronically online enough. But I mean they're what is this? They're 6 and 3 in their last 9 games. They're on a 3 game winning streak. Uh, they lost one game in February. Like that's fucking insane. Uh, I I seriously think it's gonna come down to Jokic and Ja. Um, one of the, also this is fucking incredibly weird. But everyone is talking about how uh, maybe they're not doing it anymore. I've definitely seen less of this. But folks were talking about how. Jokic doesn't get enough respect from everyone. Like, he didn't just win the MVP last year. That was, that's, that's just the lack of self-awareness that so many media people have. It's awesome. Because you're talking about Nikola Jokic, who is the reigning league MVP, and whom people regularly praise. Because he's that very rare intersection between I test Twitter and analytics Twitter. Like folks, folks will talk about his box plus minus and his VORP. And then also just be like, oh yeah, he gets buckets too. Cause he does, he do be getting buckets and he do be getting, and he do be dropping dimes. Like he does all of that. And then for people to be like, oh, well, he's not getting enough respect. I mean, there wasn't Andy Bailey tweeting about how Jokic is statistically like, I say statistically, I mean like advanced analytics, like the greatest of all time. He was using some fucking weird formula that adds up all the advanced metrics. And he's like, oh, yeah, so basically the three greatest players of all time are LeBron, Michael Jordan, and Nikola Jokic. And it's like, okay, dude, that's a little that's a little too far out for me. But to say that Jokic does not get to say that Jokic does not get enough respect from the NBA media is just wrong. I mean, he literally won an MVP. He is the reigning MVP. And he's going to win his his second straight MVP. He's going to be a back-to-back MVP. He's going to be one of, like, I think it, he'll be the 12th back-to-back MVP winner in league history. Which only makes up a third. I mean, a third is kind of a lot, actually. But which makes up a third of all MVP winners. Like, this guy... Bro, we talk about Jokic as the greatest passing center of all time. And he's been in the league for like six years. Do you know why? Because he is. Okay. So the weird, like the weird, oh, he doesn't get enough respect. It's just, you're being cringe. You're being cringe, dude, straight up. Now we're going to shift off of uh, NBA talk because there's a lot, there was a lot going on in the NFL world. People are spending money. The Giants are talking about trading Saquon Barkley. Tom Brady fucking came back. Of course. I don't, he saw that the NFC was just weak as fuck and was like, all right, dude, I got to I gotta come back. I got to go try to get to another Super Bowl. So we're not going to talk about that because there really isn't much for me to talk about. Um, I really, I'm going to talk first. We're going to talk about the Dallas Cowboys because if there's anything I love, if there's anything I love, it's shitting on the Dallas Cowboys. So 
this article is talking about how Dallas re-signed Michael Gallup to five years, $62.5 million. This is after they traded Amari Cooper to the Cleveland Browns for basically like a single Skittle. One Skittle. And it wasn't even a tropical raspberry Skittle. It was a regular-ass yellow Skittle. Which really makes no sense to me. So they signed Michael Gallup. Trade Amari Cooper to the Cleveland Browns. And I just don't understand. I just don't understand the logic here. I mean, I do. Okay. I 100% understand why they wanted to trade or why they signed Michael Gallup because it's less than what Amari Cooper was going to get this upcoming season. Amari Cooper was due 20 million, whereas Michael Gallup is due uh, a little more than it's like. 12 million around that annually. I don't know how much of this is guaranteed. It doesn't say, but what really does it for me is, Oh God, I fucking, I love, I love front office incompetence so much. The, the Cowboys were like, we're going to let Amari Cooper go and we're going to do it on Friday, the Friday before free agency begins. And I don't know why they would show their ass like that. So Cleveland comes calling and they're like, hey, we have a fifth and a sixth round pick or like a third and a fifth round pick or something. And Dallas is like, do it. Do it. Trade Amari Cooper, a a legitimate number one wide receiver to Cleveland for nothing, for actually nothing. What is Dallas going to do with these picks? What's going on here? Is it because... They don't. Want, they no longer want this logjam at receiver. Is that why? Is it because they felt that Amari Cooper wasn't properly utilized? I mean, dare I say, one of Dallas's strengths is just how potent and how flat out dominant their wide receiving core was. I mean, Dak Prescott is a very, very talented quarterback, but like he's up there in every major passing category. 37 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. I mean, this guy threw for almost 5,000 yards two years ago, would have thrown for close to 5,000 yards if he doesn't get hurt last season, or technically it's it's two seasons ago. I mean, I'm just looking at the numbers. This guy in 2020, in five games, averaged 371 yards per game. And then this year comes back with almost 4,500 yards and 37 touchdowns. And it's because... Dallas had so many options on the perimeter. Okay. You had Amari Cooper who could have been a 1000 yard guy if he was seeing more targets. And I know it's weird for me to say more targets because he had 104, but down the stretch to the end of the season, Dak Prescott was really targeted. He was feeding, he was feeding Dalton Schultz. Like he had a thyroid problem. Okay. He was just hauling in pass after pass after pass. I mean, as many targets as Amari Cooper. And then, of course, C.D. Lamb was very clearly Dak's favorite target. But it's... it. I, I just... I don't understand how you managed to get so little for Amari Cooper. 
I mean, I I do understand because they have no leverage in trading him to the Browns, but for two picks, like you couldn't even get a player. Like there was no team that offered you a a decent player for Amari's expiring contract for a guy who has a thousand yard, who for a guy who has the potential to catch uh, ten touchdowns and a thousand yards. It's odd to me. Another thing I'm thinking is maybe they were seeing what happened in Cleveland and how Baker Mayfield was almost overstimulated with the amount of weapons he had. You had Jarvis Landry. You have Odell Beckham, or you had Odell Beckham. You had Austin Hooper. You had Kareem Hunt. You had Nick Chubb. Granted, injuries and stuff. I understand. But how it's almost like paralysis. It's almost paralysis because there's so much going on. And you have to think, you have to think about where you're gonna throw the ball instead of just playing. I also think that a lot of the Browns' issues were because Baker Mayfield is just not that good at the moment. I don't think Dak Prescott would have had any of those issues because he's he is demonstrably, objectively, palpably a significantly better quarterback than Baker Mayfield in every regard. And now you're gonna whittle him down to um, to Ceedee Lamb, Michael Gallup, and Dalton Schultz, which is not a bad, it's not a bad trio. Definitely not. I'm not trying to talk down on these guys. I still think Dak is going to have an incredible season coming up, but if anything, this might be a bit of a shift as to where they're actually going to give Zeke a larger workload. Because that's really the only reason that it makes sense is that you're taking away less on the outside so that way you can give Zeke more carries and justify the money that he has or the money that he wants. Whereas on the flip side, you know, a couple of my friends and I were talking about, you know, do they trade Zeke? And it would have made more sense to trade Zeke and keep Amari Cooper because then you're just running like a college, you're just running a college offense at that point. Like you're, you're going to look like LSU when they won the national title where Dak is just throwing 50, 55 times every game throws like 45 touchdown passes and you're kind of just matching up against the defense like okay we have our two studs on the outside you have Dalton Schultz running up the middle see if you can see if you can guard us like straight up and then that would have made more sense to trade Zeke obviously and just rely on Tony Pollard but you know it could be Dallas could very well be crunching the numbers and they're like okay this is the same running back, and I have his, I have his, uh, his numbers up right now. This dude had 1,600 yards as a rookie, and 15 touchdowns, well over 300 attempts. And then you're looking at where he's at now, and he has gotten more or fewer and fewer attempts every season. The only difference is in 2017, I think that was the year he got suspended for the first six games of the season. So he only had 240 attempts. But even then, that's 24 attempts a game, which is significantly more than what he's at this past season. And just like his touches overall, I mean, this dude was good for 300 touches a couple of years ago, and he's down to 284. So if he has this big contract or he wants a big contract. I'm trying to, I'm actually trying to find his, um, I'm trying to find his, dude, do they not, does football reference not have the fucking, 
Oh yeah. So he's he wants a big contract. He's gonna be coming up on a big contract. And you know, if Dallas is gonna give this guy the money that you know people think that he's deserving of, they're gonna want to make sure that he can bear this workload. Like I think there's it's gonna go back to feed Zeke, and then that will only make Dak a more lethal quarterback, which is what they were missing before. And of course, because you had to you have to balance everybody's um egos more or less like you don't want Amari Cooper or CD Lamb getting upset because they weren't targeted enough to be a consistent thing like I know Cooper came out towards the end of the uh, towards the end of this past season and was like I don't feel like I'm being properly used enough especially in the red zone when you know he is he's arguably the best route runner on the team I mean you know definitely deserved to be a red zone target just because of his pedigree but I think the overwhelming reaction here is that the Cowboys really traded away this dude for nothing for for nothing and then how this looks from the Browns perspective is just uh, I, I I'm just not confident in I'm just not confident in Baker Mayfield because you know for whatever reason whether it's he was paralyzed by choice or injuries, I'm definitely, you know, confident that he was playing through something last season. But I just don't know if... Actually, it's not that I don't know. It's that I'm worried that Cleveland is going to turn into the Sacramento Kings where or the Orlando Magic where a good player gets traded there and they just fall off. They fall off. It's where the place where talent goes to die. However, you do, of course, have Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. You traded Odell. And I don't know if Jarvis Landry is going to be with the team. I actually, I should probably look that. I should probably uh, look that up. So he's not, I thought he got released. I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember if he got fucking dropped or not. So now you have basically Amari Cooper as the legitimate wide receiver one. And you're going to Baker Mayfield, and you're like, don't worry about anything. Just play football. If Amari's open, he's open. But still, this is going to be a run-first team. And I think Cleveland... Oh, I do love the fact that they're able to get Amari for nothing. Low-risk, high-reward, expiring contract. And if he plays well this year, which he probably will, if he plays well then you can re-sign him for a long-term deal and make him like your stud wide receiver, at least for the time being. Still going to be a run-first offense. However, having a legitimate wide receiver one, of course, opens up the run game, but it does still fall on Baker Mayfield to make these plays. He has to show, he has to show that he has the talent to be a franchise quarterback. To consistently deliver. Because these numbers. At least the numbers last year. Not doing it. And as much as I'm sure people love to shit on Baker Mayfield. Let's not forget. He did look decent. Over his first three seasons. Year one. Was good. 
as far as rookies go, he had a two to one touchdown to interception ratio through for more than 3,700 yards. Decision-making is not really, it's not really that great. I mean, to consistently be under 65% completion is not good, but you know, that's something that you can easily, I don't want to say easily, but that is something that you can improve on just by studying film, you know, better analysis, stuff like that. But like, Two years ago, 26 touchdowns and eight interceptions. I mean, the potential is there. It's just, it has to, he has to put it on the table. He has to show that he's not a fraud because there are a lot of people who look at Baker Mayfield and say, oh, this guy, he's full of shit. He talks a big game. He's got all this bravado. He's in State Farm commercials and he just cannot deliver. And in athletics, everyone knows this. You're only as good as your last season. And this last season for Baker Mayfield was not particularly great. So, I don't know. Maybe bringing in a couple new wide receivers will do something different. Maybe they'll rework the playbook. Of course, health is going to be a big thing for both Baker Mayfield and Amari Cooper. But again, you just have to look at how Odell was there and Jarvis Landry was there. And they were not the same as they were when they were with the Giants and with Miami, respectively. So there is a little, I'm not surprised that Browns fans are apprehensive, but they could have, of course, traded for a worse receiver. So there's that. I mean, Cooper, as I already mentioned, is a a legitimate thousand yard guy. Now, speaking of receivers, this was the most mind boggling transaction that happened yesterday. The Jacksonville Jaguars, the worst team, In the NFL, I mean, you know, only by a little bit. The Texans are a little bit worse. Is a nice wide receiver. When you figure the fact that the... So, they they signed a bunch of people on Monday. One of them being Christian Kirk. Now, Christian Kirk played for Arizona. Wasn't a bad wide receiver. But this guy just became the third highest paid receiver in football. Christian Kirk, the third highest paid receiver in football. I'm going to throw it over to Lewis Riddick just to let the just to let this video play. Look, the Christian Kirk is a, is a nice wide receiver. When you figure the fact that Devontae Adams is getting franchised right around $20 million, whew, that's like, hey, Christian Kirk, it's good to be you, man. It's good to be one in Congratulations, the first couple days of free agency because you know that the money is just going to be out of control as far as guarantees. And that's what that's really the, that's the key here, right? We want to know what the guarantees are. And we want to know what the guarantees are at signing of these individuals. But if they're going to go off the board this early, you know it's probably going to be something that makes them want to sign early, which means it's significant. This was something I looked up over the weekend because I had a feeling Christian Kirk would get paid handsomely. He has four games in his career with 100 receiving yards, Lewis. Yeah. Four. Yeah. Uh, his agent has now been named the NFL's executive of the year for the 2022 <laughs> season. Yeah, and you wonder why Devontae Adams would probably command somewhere north of 28, 29 million per year, or at least why he wants to. Yeah, dude. Christian Kirk's agent is psychotic in the best way possible. Granted, I'm sure, I'm sure that his negotiating with one of the worst teams in the league, a team that so desperately, so desperately needs weapons around Trevor Lawrence. I'm sure that his work or his job as negotiator was not the hardest 
that he's ever engaged in. When you look at Trevor Lawrence this season, just the Jaguars overall, absolutely disastrous. Okay, just top to bottom. Trevor Lawrence did not look good at all. The running game was okay, but in the NFL, you need weapons. And the Jaguars do not have any weapons, or really any weapons. They have James Robinson, who is a decent young back, so that's one, okay? But their leading receiver was Marvin Jones. Marvin Jones is not a number one guy. LaVisca Chanel Jr., I don't think is a number one guy. Christian Kirk could be, could be. And as Field Yates pointed out, only four 100 receiving yard games in his career compared to somebody like Devontae Adams, who is potentially getting franchise tagged for roughly the same amount as of, for roughly the same amount as Christian Kirk, Devontae Adams, one of the two super one of the two best receivers in football, a guy who is not only you know averaging 100 yards a game but is averaging like almost one touchdown per game. You know, 1200 yards, 1500 yards, 10 touchdowns, 12 touchdowns, 15 touchdowns. This is a gamble. This is a tremendous gamble for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Kirk agreed to a four-year deal worth up to $84 million. I think this is all with incentives. The actual deal is more along the lines of like $18 million a year with the potential to be yeah, up, worth up to $84. But still, man, still a uh, just monstrous, monstrous deal. Like, Kirk, who turned 25 last November, had nearly 1,000 yards last season, his first season in which he played every game. Now, obviously, not saying that Christian Kirk is a better receiver, but is he worth third-best receiver numbers or third-highest-paid receiver numbers in the NFL? Now, if we just go ahead and we... We just go ahead and we we take a look at what he was working with in what the fuck no one Christian Kirk God damn it if we just look at what he was working with with Arizona nine hundred eighty two yards five touchdowns now famously the Arizona Cardinals also have DeAndre Hopkins so we know that Hopkins when healthy is going to get a considerable amount of targets the only issue is that DeAndre Hopkins was not healthy last season. But even when he was healthy, he was not the same D-hop who was present with the Houston Texans. I mean, he still managed to lead the team in receiving touchdowns despite only playing 10 games. He had eight, so he's good for about one touchdown a game. So if you just extrapolate, if you just extrapolate what DeAndre Hopkins would have done over... <laughs> Over a 16-game season, the fact that nearly a fifth of his catches were touchdowns, that is frightening. However, there were, of course, myriad issues with the Cardinals' offense. And despite all of this, Christian Kirk did prove that he was a sure-handed receiver with the potential to do a lot more if he was the number one guy.
That's that's the takeaway here. This was a number three receiver, or who was supposed to be the number three receiver on the depth chart, stepping up, leading the team in reception yards, receptions, and being second in touchdowns. Even with all that said, it is this deal is not without risk. And I think that's abundantly clear. But the Jags are kind of like, the Jags have to do something, dude, because they are just so fucking disastrous. They are an absolutely disastrous organization. Every aspect is just not good. So you think at the worst, you have a guy who's good for a thousand yards, which Christian Kirk is probably going to do next year because Trevor Lawrence out of his rookie season, he understands what it's like to play in the NFL game slowing down. And now that there is a legitimate option for him, you know, everyone's going to, everyone's going to benefit from this deal. But is he going to get into like the 13, the 13, 14, 1500 yard range, 10, 11, 12 touchdowns that remains to be seen. And then of course, what this is going to do is this is only going to raise the salary floor for the other elite receivers who are going to command massive contracts in a few years. Devontae Adams, Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase, Stephon Diggs, whenever his contract is up, all of these guys are going to point to Christian Kirk and say to their teams, this dude got $20 million a year. And he is way worse than I am. No one's going to debate that, okay? Do you think that Justin Jefferson is going to be anywhere near Christian Kirk's payday? Justin Jefferson is going to get $25 million easy when it's time for contract negotiations. So in a couple of years, once everything levels out, if Christian Kirk goes down to being like the 15th or 20th highest paid receiver... It's a lot different. Of course, you're still putting up that amount of money now, which, of course, could backfire if if he flops, which is always a risk. But in a couple of years, again, once everything levels out, this is going to be a different conversation. And the the potential reward for Jacksonville is that instead of being the third highest paid receiver, you get third best receiver production from a guy who was only the 15th highest paid receiver. That is ultimately the best case scenario for Jacksonville. I just don't know if it's going to if it's going to play out like that. Uh we have another story that I want to talk about. This is potential this is absolutely frightening. This is an absolutely frightening development for everybody in the fucking what is it? The AFC West, I think it, it is. is. the NFL, the Bay- Bears are attempting to finalize a trade now that will send six-time Pro Bowl defensive end Khalil Mack to the Chargers. Our sources telling Adam Schefter picks are going to be involved. More details coming in a moment from Schefter. Khalil Mack played Insane. only seven games for the Bears this past season. but he rep- Yes, folks. You heard that right. Khalil Mack is set to be traded to the Los Angeles Chargers. I keep closing the fucking the pro football reference page and I, I don't know why because I'm just going to need it. So now, the AFC West, a division that already features Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs, already features 
the Las Vegas Raiders. More recently features Russell Wilson in Denver. Also, the Chargers, the team that Khalil Mack is going to, features Justin Herbert, Keenan Allen, Austin Eckler. Now, this trade, how this trade happened, I just... Uh, uh, dude, I'm, I am shocked. Absolutely floored that Khalil Mack, one of the premier defenders in the NFL, is going to the Chargers for about two picks, or at least that's what it is. <clears throat> that's what it says in the article. I'm sure it's a little different now, but I'm too lazy to actually do the research because I'm bad at this. Two picks to pair this guy with Joey Bosa. Right? It is Joey. I want to make sure I'm not fucking mis- misremembering this. Yes, Joey Bosa. A frightening lineman in his own right. And let's not forget, folks, the Chargers had a miserable defense last year. Okay? Their fifth best offense. This offense led by the cannon arm having Justin Herbert, a dude that had 5,000 yards damn near. Throwing to Keenan Allen. Ended the ball off to Austin Eckler. Finished fifth in scoring offense. And they were they looked as bad as they did because the defense just stinks. They were the fourth lowest. They were the fourth worst defense in the league. Okay? I think they were like also 11th worst in yards allowed. Their pressure, being able to pressure their quarterback was like non-existent. They were also, I think, like bottom 10 in sacks even with Joey Bosa. So that just points to how how much of a struggle it was for this team. On the backside, you know, they have Derwin James, so it's not the worst, but Khalil Mack is a dude who went healthy. Will give you like 10, 11, 12 sacks a game. Or for a season, pardon me, 10 sacks a game. That's fucking, that's Madden, that's Madden behavior. And I don't, if I were... If I were a team in the AFC West, I would be scared. I would be frightened to have to go up against these three teams, these whatever team you are, the three other teams, two times each. I mean, I'm sure they're not scared because all of these teams are talented in their own right, but like even the Chiefs, you're a quarterback in the AFC West. You're going up against Chris Jones, Joey Bosa, Khalil Mack, Max Crosby. I think that's his name, right? The uh, the lineman for the Raiders. Like, it is not good vibes if you're an offense in this league. I mean, it is because they, all these teams also have incredible offenses. But this is without a doubt now the best division in football. Like the AFC West and the NFC West are probably the two most competitive divisions. But the NFC West is going to take a hit because they don't have Russell Wilson playing in Seattle anymore. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, now Mac will join four-time Pro Bowler Joey Bosa in what will be a fierce combination in LA over the past five seasons. Mac and Bosa both rank top four in total defensive pressures. They also both have exactly 12 strip sacks over those five seasons, which is tied for sixth in the NFL. Their presence will come at a time at a perfect time for LA with Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, and Derek Carr all opposing quarterbacks in the AFC West. Yeah, this is fucking, this is absolutely preposterous. And 
I don't even know. It doesn't matter what this means for the Chicago Bears because they're just they're blowing the team up as they should. Just absolutely disastrous performances last year from everybody. Matt Nagy, the offense as a whole, just not being good at all. Um, Justin Fields did not play well, but I also think it was not really his fault. It was Matt Nagy's fault because there was just like nothing going on. The offensive line was just fucking paper mache. Allen Robinson was nothing like he was previously. It was it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And trading Khalil Mack, giving him the chance to you know contend. I can't see you know. I'm sure I'm sure he's uh he's pretty happy about it. And the last piece that we're going to talk about is we're going to talk a little bit about Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson, you know, former quarterback of the Houston Texans, and I say former even though I shouldn't be because he hasn't played for them in a while, did not play at all last season because of the ongoing criminal investigation into his numerous sexual assault cases. He has been found not guilty of criminal charges in all of those cases. However, he does still face pending civil suits. So we'll see how this plays out. Obviously, jail time is no longer a thing. But the fact that there still are civil suits points to maybe something sussy going on. I hope that this situation gets resolved, obviously. I hope all of the afflicted parties find proper closure. And the Texans, I feel, want to... I feel like they just want to move on from Deshaun Watson because it's just... It's been an absolute mess, both with, of course, his legal issues, him just being, you know, contemptuous of the team, and they're trying to find a trade partner. Cleveland's been mentioned. Uh, Miami was mentioned. Who else is here? The Carolina Panthers. The Saints have already actually met with Watson. The funny part is that they, <laughs> the Colts reached out to the Texans, and they were like, no, I'm sorry. We don't want him going to... Uh, we don't want him going to a division rival. I mean, and rightfully so, because could you imagine Deshaun Watson on the fucking Colts with Jonathan Taylor, Michael Pittman, and that defense? Mm, I can't say I blame the Texans. Uh, the Cleveland Browns are meeting with Texans quarterback Deshaun Watson on Tuesday, which is today, about a potential trade. The Falcons have also emerged as a sleeper team for Watson's services. The quarterback who grew up in the Atlanta area will meet with the Falcons on Wednesday. The Texans reportedly prefer to trade Watson to an NFC team. Panthers, yada, yada. The Browns leap into the Watson sweepstakes. Comes as a surprise with the team already having Baker Mayfield under center. Uh, GM Andrew Barry said earlier this offseason that he fully expects Mayfield to be the team's starter. This is going to be fucking awesome. Mayfield is, of course, coming off a poor season. Now, I don't... I think that... Cleveland is totally within their right to uh, do their due do their due diligence on someone who isn't Baker Mayfield, especially someone like Deshaun Watson, who is similarly aged and also again better, just straight up, just straight up better. If I have the option to have Deshaun Watson under center compared to Baker Mayfield, I don't know if anyone is not taking that. 
maybe it would have been better a year earlier. But it's not like Deshaun Watson would be coming to a situation that's just totally fucking busted. You know? It's just a matter of if you are Cleveland or you are Atlanta, like what does the trade look like to make this work? Especially if you're Cleveland because you're bringing in Deshaun Watson. You want to retain as much offensive firepower as possible. So obviously Amari Cooper is off the table. Maybe Donovan Peoples-Jones is thrown in. I feel if you're the Texans, you absolutely 1 million percent need to you need to get one of those running backs you have to you have to get either kareem hunt or nick chubb because also your running back situation is fucking poo poo water you have rex burkhead and mark ingram who both rushed for less than 700 yards combined so yeah you need some help you need a weapon you need literally any weapon and um unfortunately outside of Deshaun Watson and Brandon Cooks, like, you don't have much to offer. However, because you have Deshaun Watson, like, that's good enough for any team to want to strike a trade with because I don't see any team in their right mind trying to get Deshaun Watson and, like, overdoing it by being, you know, bricked up or super horny to get Brandon Cooks as well. I feel like that would just turn the Texans off, especially if you're a team like... Cleveland, who is actually very interested in Deshaun Watson, but you also have Baker Mayfield. So, I don't know. There's a lot of time. Watson, of course, does have a no-trade clause as well, so he is effectively dictating wherever he wants to go. And with that, I think I'm going to close it out for today. As always, thank you guys so very much for coming to hang out with me. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, welcome. I'm here live every Tuesday at about 2 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to follow the Twitch channel also if you want to see more of me over subscribe to the youtube channel twitter tiktok instagram all of those will be linked in the description as well if you're listening to this as a podcast go ahead leave a like leave a rating leave a review just engage with it somehow also tell a friend if you liked it tell a friend if you didn't like it all press is good press and with that i'll catch you guys next week